shouldn't be too hard to preach after that. <laughs> Before we get into God's word together, uh, a couple of, of notes for you. We spent the last two weekends talking about um, the future of our church and where we're going. And um, I just want to say that we have had really an overwhelmingly positive response to those weekends and uh, in a very exciting way. And I think that that unity is going to be very important as we move ahead and we see what God has for us. We also had people fill out cards um, last weekend and just a couple interesting uh, statistics. We had around 700 of you who committed to be in prayer for this. May that number increase. We had 268 cards that said they would like to learn more and 113 who said they would uh, be interested in, t- in attending the very first multi-site. So we'll see, uh, we'll see where that goes. Also, 121 were ready to do some work at the site when the day comes. 121. You can get a lot done with a number like that. So we are off and running and uh, we're excited about it. Um, I, uh, Brad mentioned earlier a little bit about uh, the opportunity to give towards these things and I would just echo his uh, comments regarding uh, the need there. Finally, on a personal note, I mentioned a few weeks ago that I thought that I had uh, hurt my knee. And uh, if you recall, a year and a half ago, I had surgery on my right knee for a torn medial meniscus. And I hardly mentioned it when I had it, but <laughs> you may remember. And I, I have uh, discovered that I have done exactly the same thing on my left knee. And so a week from Thursday, I am going under the knife and having uh, the same surgery. I'm sure I'll never mention it again. Uh, also, interestingly, Pastor Gary uh, went into the doctor this week, and it was confirmed that he also has torn his uh, meniscus. And this Wednesday, he is going in for surgery on the same thing. So it's it's like it, it's it's catching on. I think is what's happening around here. And I would just like to say I would like to ask for prayer for Pastor Gary uh, more than me in the surgery because. For a man his age, (laughs) this is a more dangerous thing than for those of us that are uh, much, much younger. So please be in prayer for Pastor Gary. Thus far in our series, I Met Jesus, we have met some very interesting people. Uh, we've talked about John the Baptist. We've uh, met the woman at the well. We, we encountered uh, the, the blind man uh, along the road and the lame man and others as well. They all have one general thing in common, and, and that is, is that they had this meeting with Jesus that was utterly transformational to them. And on the other side of that meeting, they're a much different person. So that the woman at the well goes rushing into the town and says, come and hear a man who told me everything I ever did. And, uh, of course, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus had a little something uh, different in their mind on the other side of his resurrection than they did uh, before. And the blind man stands up to the religious establishment of his day and points out to them that no one uh, could do this unless they were sent from God. 
And so we see these real changes in these people as a result of meeting Jesus. And, of course, this has been a challenge to us because we similarly want our faith encounters with Christ to have their fully transformational effect on our lives and for us to similarly never be the same again. We could look at this, at these people, and, and look at the highlight reel of Jesus' life, and we could maybe get the idea that everybody that met Jesus was changed. And everybody that had an encounter with Jesus believed. And this would be not true to the story. We would uh, possibly speculate, boy, if only Jesus was here today. I mean, everybody would believe in him. Everybody would love him. It would be so fantastic. I mean, if Jesus had the opportunity to go to the UN and to address those delegates, they would all love him. And if he had the opportunity to lecture at the University of Chicago, all the academic and the the scholars, they would love it and believe in him. And if he could have the opportunity to walk down the cancer ward there at Rush Presbyterian and go, you're healed and you're healed and now you're healed and now you're healed. All of the doctors and the nurses, they would all believe in him, wouldn't they? And yet, what do we find when Jesus was here and did all of those same things? Did everybody believe in him? No, they did not. In fact, the longer Jesus was around, the less popular he was. And we have these huge shifts in public opinion, I think highlighted, the best example of this, would be on his last week on earth, his Passion Week. He rides into Jerusalem on a donkey on Sunday. The children are singing. The adults are shouting messianic psalms over him. People are waving branches. The whole city comes out to meet him on Sunday. And on Friday, they kill him. So, the question is, how do you explain... How do you explain this? How do you explain people who are just like you and me and like people in our culture observing and seeing these unbelievable miracles that Jesus did that have never been seen before or since? How do they stare into the eyes of the Son of God and see the display of his power and not believe? How could they do that? Well, today we are going to talk about two large groups of people, uh, both of whom their response to Jesus was uh, less than desirable. I'm calling them the crowds and the cowards. The crowds and the cowards. And with this now, we are on John chapter 12 today. So if you have a Bible, please turn there. John chapter 12. This is Tuesday of Jesus' Passion Week. Okay, so he is in Jerusalem. And he is, this is really the end of his public teaching ministry, this passage that we have here before us. And this is what it says, beginning in verse 35. Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. 
When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. So we have here Jesus now wrapping up his public teaching ministry with a call to believe, a call to faith, which he pictures in the spiritual metaphor of light and darkness. Light is a metaphor for believing. Darkness is a metaphor for unbelieving, which he describes as uh, walking in darkness and not knowing where he is going. And if you notice in your Bible now, if you have a Bible like the one I happen to have, I happen to have one of these red letter editions, which I am personally not a big fan of, uh, as it, it sort of insinuates that those are the really important and inspired words and everything else a little less so. It's all inspired. But if you have a Bible like mine, you can see uh, that there's a lot of red, but then you get to verse uh, the latter part of verse 36, and what color is it? Black. And you'll notice it's black from 36 all the way down to verse 43. And the reason that you see that is that John now basically steps out of the story and gives a commentary on the response of the crowds of the general population to the life and the ministry of Jesus. And this is what he says. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. This is our passage before us today. And we're going to spend most of our time focusing on the crowds. But just for a moment, let's notice the cowards, which are described at the end of this passage. Verse 42 says that while most people did not believe in Jesus, there were many who did, even amongst the leadership of the day. And these he describes as being fearful. They were intimidated by the Pharisees. In such a way that they did not acknowledge that they were followers of Jesus. They did not confess him uh, as their, as their, uh, they did not confess themselves as his disciple. Now, notice that the reason for this, verse 43 says, is that they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now, we could spend quite a long time talking about this, couldn't we? Before last night's service, uh, there was a, a, a teenage girl that came strolling through, and I talked to her, and I, I said, tell me about yourself. She said, oh, I'm 16. I go to Crown Point High School. I said, oh, there is such a good verse for you, and you'll know it when I get to it. And this is the verse right here. Why do people fail to confess and acknowledge to other people that they are followers of Christ. 
What really is at the core of this? And let's just be honest for a moment. This is something that we all have felt, have we not? A moment socially or at work or at school where instinctively we know that if I say anything that would somehow suggest that I am a Christian, that these people are going to look what on me? They are going to look together class down on me. And I would what in their eyes? I would be diminished in their eyes, which the human heart never wants, does it? Because of our pride and our self-regard, we always want people to look up to us, not down to us. And yet we happen to be following as our Lord and Savior, somebody that in that culture of that day and in ours as well, is looked down upon. So who wants to identify with somebody that is going to cause people to look down on me? And we feel this tension within us, do we not, in these moments? Do I say something? Or not? Why don't we? This verse explains it. Because we, like the the cowards, we want men's glory and admiration more than we want God's glory admiration of us and we all feel that tension and this explains it and i would encourage all of us to meditate on that verse i can only believe that it would make us a more courageous and bold witness for christ if we cared a lot less about man's glory and a lot more about god's okay so that's not really what this message is about but it's a good word for us I want to talk about the crowds, not the cowards. Let's talk about the crowds. This general population when Jesus was here, how did they respond? And John begins his gospel by explaining what this response was. In John chapter 1, verse 11, it says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now this text explains it in a summary sense. Here comes the Son of God to earth. You would expect everybody to think he's fantastic. Everybody to believe in him. But amongst his own people, the Jews, amongst that population, the overall summary is that they did not receive him. They did not believe in him. They did not follow him. Now, many did, clearly. But as a whole, in the general population, and amongst the leadership in particular, he was not received. Now, I wonder if this strikes you. You read something like this, or even this passage in John 12. Does this strike you as hard to understand? Because it does... It does me when I look in the Gospels and I see the nature and the character of his life and the things that he did. I mean, it's hard to believe that a rational person could sit there on the side of the mountain and and watch Jesus multiply food and feed 15,000 and think to himself, it's just not enough for me, right? Or to be standing there at the grave of Lazarus And to be mourning, if you were at the grave that day, you weren't there because you thought Jesus or uh, Lazarus was alive. You were there because you believed him to be dead. So nobody's there going, I don't think he's dead. I'm here to make sure that nobody raises him apparently from the dead. Nobody like that. They're all believing that he's dead. 
And to stand there and to see Jesus say, Lazarus, come out. And to see a guy dead four days, wrapped in things, come hopping down out of the tomb that day. And to sit there and to look at that and to think, it's just not that impressive to me. I know Jesus claims to be the son of God and all the rest, but he is going to have to step it up some because this whole resurrection from the dead thing, it's just not enough for me. I mean, don't you think that if you, we, we sort of envision ourselves, if we were there, if I was one in the, in the crowd and I saw something like this happen, I would so be into it. I mean, I would believe. I, in fact, I believe if I lived in the first century, I would be one of those 12 disciples. Certainly Jesus would have picked me to be one of them and I would have been right there in the circle. We sort of envision ourselves in the story this way. Like I would have been, I would have been one of, you know, I'd have been Mary Magdalene. I would have been one of those followers. And yet, the people that were there, like you and me, and like our general population here in America, observed and saw and heard the most amazing and wonderful things that have ever been done in the history of the world, and they didn't believe. They did not receive him. Why and how could this be the case? And what John does here for us is he explains unbelief. This is a theology of unbelief, an explanation of how and why the human heart can be exposed to the glory and the beauty of the person of Jesus and yet be resolute in unbelief. Now, the way that he gets to it is that he quotes from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And he does so from probably two of the most famous passages in all of Isaiah, Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6. So let's talk about both of these. We'll not turn back to either passage. But Isaiah 53, you probably, if you've been a Christian very long, you probably know Isaiah 53. It it may be the most well-known passage in all of Isaiah. It is clearly a messianic uh, passage. So much so, in fact, that we have a family in our church that heads a ministry and an evangelistic ministry to Jews around the world. And one of their main tools uh, in evangelism to Jews is to pull out Isaiah 53 and to read it where it talks about uh, being, you know, he's, he was bruised for us and, and uh, he, he, uh, God laid on him the iniquity of us all and, and all that it talks about. And to read that and to say to the Jew, who do you think he's talking about? Because it's obviously a messianic passage, who could that possibly be? They do that over and over around the world. John is similarly saying, hey, look, this this unbelief was prophesied about the Messiah. In fact, verse 1 of Isaiah 53 begins with these words, Lord, who has believed? Even the Messiah, the most wonderful person, Who will ever come, anointed of God, the root of Jesse, son of David, with power and glory beyond anybody else that's ever lived. Even him, the human heart, will reject it. Lord, who has believed? They will not believe, even with him. In fact, he doesn't read this, but two verses later, Isaiah 53, verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him 
not. There you go. And that was an indictment on the first century population and, I believe, all of humanity, including the culture and the country that we live in today. They're not going to believe him. They are not, not only are they going to reject him, they are going to despise him. Isaiah 53. Now, Isaiah 6 is the second passage that he quotes where he now gets into a little bit more theologically how and why the human heart cannot believe in Christ on its own. Now let's talk about Isaiah 6. You may know this passage as well. This is the passage where Isaiah has this grand uh, vision into the throne room of heaven uh, that he sees the, hot, the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe fills the temple and the seraphim and the angels are crying out over him. It's a fantastic passage. It truly is. Isaiah sees, in fact... John says here, Isaiah sees the glory of Christ, that the Lord who was high and lifted up was Jesus, pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament, something the theologians call Christophanies, manifestations of Christ in the Old Testament. There are many of them, and Isaiah 6 is one of them. He saw the glory of Jesus in that vision. And so here you have this glorious high lifted, and, 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 and Isaiah says that he feels his sinfulness. He feels his brokenness. But the Lord says, says over, or in this vision, whom shall we send? Words that have sent missionaries and pastors and Christian workers into the field for centuries. Lord, who shall we, or who shall we send? And Isaiah hears these words and he sees the glory of Jesus and he hears the question, he needs somebody to go. And Isaiah's response famously is, Lord, here am I, send me. Now if you're Isaiah, there in Isaiah 6, you have a vision of the, of the very throne room of God. You hear this call to go and to do something. You volunteer to go and do it. Would you not think to yourself, man, this is going to be awesome. God is going to use me to reach so many people. I'm, I'm probably going to, I'm probably going to evangelize an entire country. I mean, if God's given me this, it must be a huge, massive thing that God's going to do. Very next words, which is what now John quotes. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. What? You know what God's saying there? Isaiah, go, tell them, preach teach but in your going you need to realize they're not going to believe anything you say in fact they're not going to give a rip about what you have to say but go and do it anyway it'll be fruitless it'll be useless have a nice day i think most pastors and missionaries at that point would say i think you need to send somebody else because that doesn't at all sound like the wonderful fruitful ministry that i would like to invest my life in they are not going to listen they are not going to understand they are not going to believe why don't people get it 
Why doesn't the God's word automatically bring about faith? Notice, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Now that's a hard word right there, is it not? I mean, it's one thing to think, well, people reject him because they're stupid. Or they reject him because uh, they're, you know, into their sinful desires. But this text says that they reject him because God has hardened their hearts. Unbelief is both a man thing and a God thing. And here we are on the horns of a great mystery between divine sovereignty and human responsibility in the choosing or not choosing to follow Jesus. And the Bible says that both are true. That God has so created the universe and so created this redemption that we are responsible for the decisions that we make and the choices that we make to reject Jesus. And God is sovereign over those choices in a way that my refusal to believe fulfills his purposes. Which sounds to us like a great contradiction. But in the mind and the heart of God, it is not. I think this is the explanation of John 11. Let's go back to that moment. These people are standing there. They are grieving. They're sorrowing. Martha is there saying, as the oldest sister... Don't remove the stone because he stinks by now. It's been four days. And Jesus is there weeping. He is emotional, but he knows what he is going to do. He says, roll that stone away. Lazarus, come out. Who has power over death? There's only been one person. It's Christ. And he, with power that only God has, summons Lazarus back to life. Out comes Lazarus now, hopping along. And there amongst the crowd of people that are grieving, you have two responses. The text says that as a result of Lazarus' resurrection, many believed. But it also says there were many people that were standing there who saw this thing, and they go running to the Pharisees in horror, saying, we have got to stop this guy. Look at what he's doing. Willful unbelief. I don't care if he's raising people from the dead. That's not the way it ought to be. I'm not going to follow him. I'm not going to believe him. How, how can you see a resurrection from the dead and not believe? We go to this passage. It is because their hearts were hardened. They had willful unbelief that they chose in that moment, which fulfills God's will and purpose for them. Which is why verse 39, in a very troubling sort of way, says, Therefore they could not believe. What is going on here? Hearts hardened in unbelief. I say this is what it looks like, as Jesus says in verse 35, to be walking around in darkness and not knowing where you're going. The human heart in our brokenness and in our sinfulness is so much in darkness that we do not, we are unable on our own to appropriate light, to appropriate spiritual truth in a way that leads to salvation. That is how far we have fallen. 
Here is uh, Deuteronomy 29. Moses says to the Israelites who saw tremendous miracles that God had done. He says, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Romans 1. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so we see here that there is a kind of seeing of things that is not really seeing. And there's a kind of hearing of spiritual truth that doesn't really hear. And there's a kind of, 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 of learning that is not understanding. And this happens all over the world. Happens all the time. Indeed, no doubt happening in this room right now. Where we have in this room the very thing that John is talking about. We have light and darkness. We have understanding and we have, uh, we have seeing, but it's not leading to a true seeing nor a true understanding. The unregenerate man, the natural man, cannot on his own appropriate light and truth in a way that leads to what the Bible describes as genuine, true, saving faith. And it doesn't matter how much he sees, even resurrection, on his own, apart from God's grace, he will never believe. 1 Corinthians 2, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. Look at that little phrase right there. Does that not explain... Much of what you are likely to see at your family gathering this Christmas. When you say, before we open the presents, would you mind if we read the Christmas story? And here's what the eyes of many of your family members are going to do in that moment. Right? Eyes are going to roll. Now, they may be respectful. It may be the eyes of their heart going Every family has nut jobs, so okay, we'll let you do that. (laughs) But to them, what does it seem like? It seems like folly. It seems like, it seems like foolishness. They don't understand. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, the natural man, apart from God's grace, can understand to a point. They can even maybe get to a point of assenting to the claims of Christianity. Maybe the moments in the narrative that Jesus came to earth, that he died on the cross. There's a kind of intellectual assent and understanding that the natural man can have. But it is not a kind of assent that is saving faith. It is not transformational in their life. It is. It, it does not produce change that lasts. It's a simple illustration from when I was a kid. But I remember they used to say, many people are going to miss heaven by 12 inches. Which is the distance from here to here. How many people get it here? Lots of people. How many people get it here? Much, much less. And that from here to here is a work of God. 
It is a work of God. Let me give you some examples from the Bible. I think the second best example of what I'm talking about is Judas. Imagine being Judas. Hand-selected by Jesus into the 12 disciples. You spend three years of your life traveling with Jesus, seeing you, all the things that, that, that we have here. He saw them. Remember, John said, if, if everything that Jesus did was to be put in a book, the whole world couldn't contain it. So we only know what we know here. Judas saw all the other stuff, too. He saw the resurrection. He saw the feeding of the 5,000. He was in the boat when the storm uh, stopped. He saw Jesus walking on the water. He saw the blind man see. He saw the deaf man hear. He saw the whole thing. And he betrayed Jesus to his death for 30 pieces of silver. What's going on there? It is willful unbelief for which Judas is accountable to God. Jesus said, it'd be better that you didn't ever live than betray the son of man. And yet it was fulfilling prophecy and the will of God that he do it. God is sovereign and man is responsible. To me, the best example of this is Satan himself. Satan created by God. God, serving God in the very throne room of heaven, seeing the Shekinah glory of God, realizing to a degree that none of us do the full majesty of who God is. And in spite of all of that, rebels against God, leads angels in the rebellion, and is to this day God's sworn enemy. What's going on there? There is a huge difference between here and here. He knows it. James says the demons, the demons believe in God and shudder. But is, are, are their hearts, are their hearts surrendered to God in a kind of way that embraces Jesus and treasures Him above everything else as my Savior and Lord? No. That's what saving faith is. It is not merely knowing the knowledge and the facts. It is when my heart embraces Christ from, from within and trusts in Him fully in what He did, finishing salvation on the cross. And when I am embracing Him as best I can with all that I have as my hope and as my Savior and as my Lord, that work is so supernatural that we would never do it on our own. And that is why the Bible calls it a gift. Faith is a gift, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Why? So that at the end of the day, none of us can boast about it. Look what I've done. Look what I've come up with. What do we have that God has not given to us? Even the faith to believe and to understand the glory of Christ is a gift from God. So there is a kind of seeing, but not really seeing. And there's a kind of hearing and not really hearing. And there's a kind of knowing, but not really understanding. And I wonder today if that might not be you. I'm not asking if you know the facts. Not asking if you could spout out the right answers. The question is, where is your heart? And is Jesus Lord there? 
That's the issue. That is what saving faith is. Ravi Zechariah says it this way. The scriptures teach that the problem with human unbelief is not the absence of evidence. It is the suppression of it. It is the suppression of it. How many people are going to land in hell and suddenly in that moment realize that they knew everything they needed to know to be given the gift of eternal life, but they suppressed it, they denied it, they did not surrender to it. As J.C. Ryle said, hell is truth uh, realized too late. In particular, a culture like ours in America, where we have this sort of legacy of Christianity, where so many people, you know, they grew up in church, they grew up knowing the facts of that. Their lives have no reflection of following Christ, but they know it. They know the facts. They're missing heaven by 12 inches. Verse 39, therefore, they could not believe the human heart is so broken We don't realize how fallen in sin we are, how dark our natural existence is apart from God. Like Jesus says here, we have no idea where we're going, the natural man. As one writer comments, this is a holy condemnation of a guilty people who are condemned to do and to be what they themselves have chosen. I also think that understanding unbelief helps us understand saving belief. Understanding unbelief helps us understand saving belief. Because the faith that saves is a response to God's grace and mercy to me in Jesus. And that is why it is not merely consenting or acknowledging Christ. It is a giving of myself to him. It is a giving of myself to him and all that I am. In other words, here's the bottom line. Unbelief is our fault. Saving faith is God's fault. So that nobody gets to heaven and says, look what I've done. As one man used to say to me, if we go to hell, we realize it's our fault. If we get to heaven, we realize it's God's fault. This is what God has done. He has brought light into the darkness of my fallenness. And has given me understanding to apprehend the glory and the beauty of Christ in such a way that the eyes of my heart and the eyes of my mind see and realize and understand. And I give myself to him and I trust in him. Is that you today? Where are you? Light darkness, belief, unbelief. Now I want to give you two modern day examples of what I'm talking about. First one's Christmas. Here we are, Christmas season. If you didn't know, it's coming up very soon. And this is a season where it's hard to miss in our country, in our culture, that something special is going on. You you couldn't even drive. How far could you get down the road here from this location and not realize something special is going on? There are decorations around. You go by the mall area. It's packed out. But just for fun, let's imagine that uh, you're from another planet. And you got on a rocket ship. Or you used a wormhole or whatever it was that you did. 
to suddenly arrive here in our culture knowing nothing at all. You get out of the ship, you look around, it's this time of year, you look around and you see all the things that are going on and you say to somebody, you say, I see the word Christmas, what does that mean? And the other person who happens to be up on these things says, well, it's a compound word. Christ is the messianic title for the savior of the world. And mass comes from the ancient practice of the Lord's Supper being the highlight celebration moment that Jesus came to save us. So Christmas is a celebration that Jesus came to save us. That's what the word means. And the person, you, you go, "Mm, that's very, very interesting. So how does that relate to all the things that I see going on around here? Like, what are all these decorations for that I see? Oh, it's, this is a huge celebration for us. We put up tinsel. We put up garland. We put up greenery. We put up trees. We fill them with lights. We do it every year. We love it. Love it. Big time highlight of the year. Oh. What about these songs? Every store I go into, it seems like I'm hearing like the same songs. They have words like, Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let heaven and nature sing. Well, these are songs that we play and we sing every year. They play them in the restaurants. They play them in the stores. We all know these songs. We love these songs because they talk about Christmas. They remind us of Christmas. Hmm. So what you're saying to me is that all the people at the mall that I see scurrying around buying gifts and all the people I see in the community putting up lights at their house, and preparing gifts to give to others. You're saying to me that all these people, they all are followers of Jesus? No. you got to realize Christmas is a giant celebration of something that most of us don't believe. Can you imagine yourself looking at our culture going, so you're doing all of this? And you don't believe it? What is wrong with you people? Do you see the insanity of it? Have you ever thought to yourself as you're at a, at a store somewhere, shopping for whatever this time of year, and you hear, Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Have you ever stopped and thought to yourself, these people that are looking at things and clothes and all the rest... The words that are in the air are enough to take them from an eternity in hell and to give them eternal life. And yet, it's like noise in the background. Is this 20 or 30% off? (laughs) Now, this seems normal to us. But any outside observer who stepped into our culture 
would say, what is wrong with you people? Celebrating something that nobody believes in. How do you explain a culture like ours that will do all that it does but not really believe it? It is because precisely of what we have here before us. The human heart is darkened. And no matter how much light there is, whether it be, O Holy Night, a service like this, or the incarnate Son of God saying, come out of there, Lazarus, it will not believe. My second example today is Christopher Hitchens. Now, some of you know who this guy is. Most of you probably saw the news reports this week. Christopher Hitchens died on Thursday. Very quickly, let me tell you who Christopher Hitchens is. Uh, He was a brilliant author, kind of a provocative writer. Uh, He was a historian. He wrote on many, many things, but his favorite thing to talk about and to write about is the, basically the ludicrous nature of religion. He would be, along with Richard Dawkins, uh, the most famous atheist of our day. Uh, and he, he died after a battle of cancer on Thursday. Now, here's something else interesting about Christopher Hitchens is that he was all of these things in a, in a kind of lovable way. And if you read the blogs and if you saw the reports, even on evangelical uh, blogs, there were a lot of reports about Christopher Hitchens because over the years he had engaged evangelicals in debates and conversations that he would ridicule Christianity, but he did it in a very lovable way, I guess you could say. Sort of like that uh, strange uncle at the Christmas gathering that, you know, you don't agree with him, but you can't help but like him. That's kind of what Christopher Hitchens was to the evangelical uh, world. He was brilliant. I would dare say that Christopher Hitchens could run circles around most, if not all, uh, I'd say most, evangelical Christians in America in terms of his understanding of doctrine, the claims of Christianity, uh, and all the rest. He knew it. He debated our best intellectuals. You can see those debates. They're available online. Uh, A very, very brilliant man with a thorough understanding of Christianity. However, uh, there were a certain 12 inches that were missing uh, faith-wise with Christopher Hitchens. So I bring him up to you because I think it was two years ago, Christopher Hitchens uh, agreed to be in a movie, a film that was produced, and it was a series of debates with a pastor from Idaho named Douglas Wilson. And the idea of this video, this film, was that they would film a lot of different contexts where these two guys are talking about faith and religion and who's right and who's wrong. And uh, so they produced this film. And so that some of them, it's like coffee shop or a bar or lecture hall or all these different settings. And they kind of mix it together. It's available online. In fact, I'll have the link on my blog maybe today if you'd like to watch it. The movie ends with a final scene in which 
Hitchens and uh, Pastor Wilson are in the back of a limousine. And the cameraman is sitting on the one side, and they're sitting next to each other. And they got their feet up, and, and they're just kind of chilling and chatting. And Christopher Hitchens says something very interesting in this final uh, moment in the, in the movie. And I'd like us to watch uh, the clip. So if you would go ahead and play that right now. At some point, certainly, we all asked, well, which is the best argument you've yet come up against from the other side? And I think every one of us picks the fine-tuning one. It's the, it's the most intriguing. The Goldilocks. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Fine, fine-tuning the one degree, well, one degree, one hair different to nothing. But even though it doesn't prove design, doesn't prove a designer, could all have happened without... It, it, you have to spend time thinking about it. It's not a trivial. We all say that. And then at one point, I think this is not on camera. Um, I said, if um, if I could convert everyone in the world, not convert, if I could convince, it would be non-believable. And I've, I've really done brilliantly. And there's only one left, one more, and then it would be done. There would be no more religion in the world. I wouldn't do it. And Dawkins said, what do you mean you wouldn't do it? I said, I don't quite know why I wouldn't do it. And it's not just because there would be nothing left to argue with and no one left to argue with. It's not just that. Though there would be that. Somehow, I, if I could drive it out of the world, I wouldn't. And the incredulity with which he looked at me, did you catch that the most famous atheist of our day its most articulate defender admits that if he had the ability to eradicate the world of religion he wouldn't do it how do you explain that I explain it with Jesus' words here. Richard Dawkins, groping in the darkness of his spiritual uh, world, admitting that something in him instinctively recognizes a need. I'd like to ask where you are today. We've seen the crowds. We've seen the cowards, and now we've seen Christopher Hitchens. I wonder if perhaps today you might be here with a certain level of understanding, a certain assenting to Christianity, but not truly a giving of yourself to him as Lord and Savior. Is it possible that we would have someone here who would miss heaven by 12 inches. And you, know, you don't need to worry about, what, am I a hardened heart or not? You are accountable for your choice. And through the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, God saves men and women by shedding light in their heart so that they can see and see, hear 
and hear. Learn and truly understand. If you will believe in him as your savior. Jesus is the light of the world. And today I would call you from his own words to believe in the light while the light is here and to be saved. I also think this very eloquently and powerfully speaks to those of us who have our faith in Christ. Why do I say that? Because this is a reminder of God's gracious act to us. There isn't a single one of us here that on our own could step out of the darkness of unbelief. The only way that we have come to understand what Christmas and Easter and the whole thing is all about is that God has graciously given us the gift of faith. So who here, anybody here you want to stick your chest out and go, hey, look at me. What do we have that God has not given to us? We'll say that for all of eternity. Which I think ought to elicit a profound thankfulness and gratitude that God has given us life and the gospel and has brought us to a point of salvation. To him be the glory and the praise for what he has done for us. Amen. Amen.